Motive in the Christian life. What do we mean when we say that phrase, motive in the Christian life? Well, if I were to take that phrase and I were to frame it into a question, it would sound something similar to this. What is the core reason that incentivizes us to live a life that commits service to Christ? In other words, why are we Christians? What is it about being a Christian that makes you and I want to be one? Some of you may have heard of social exchange theory. Social exchange theory is a sociological perspective that says that we enter relationships because there's something that we want from that relationship, right? It's kind of a selfish perspective, but it's also kind of uh, common sense, right? We enter relationships because there's a reciprocal desire, a reciprocal gain that we're trying to get out of that relationship, whether we realize it or not. So whether if I enter a relationship because I want companionship, I want friendship, I want a network contact, whatever it is, I choose to enter that relationship because there's something that I want in return from it. And so the question becomes is, is when I enter in a relationship with Christ, when I enter in a relationship with His church, what is it that I'm trying to extract from that relationship? And that's what, what we're trying to concern ourselves with this morning. What is the motive for being a Christian? Do you think that there are some people out there that their whole reason for being in the Christian arena is just so they can have some public recognition? People going up to them and patting them on the back saying, wow, that guy is a really great Christian. Right? Their service, their acts of alms and good deeds, their service to God is not driven from a love for God, but it's driven from a public relations aspect. I, I think so. I think there are people out there. I think it's easy for us to fall into that snare. You go home this afternoon, you turn on your TV and you watch a, a football game and all of a sudden an ad comes on. It says, the National Football League is a proud sponsor of St. Jude's Cancer Research Center. Last year, the NFL donated over $5 million to kids who are suffering from cancer. Now ask yourself, how does that make you feel? Is that strategic marketing with great tax incentives or... Is that a positive charitable work that needs to be displayed on a TV that's consumed in sin and despair? I, mean, I don't know. I'm asking you, how, did, how does that make you feel? Or you go home this afternoon, you sign on to your Facebook, and you see uh, one of your old high school classmates who uh, is with his youth group somewhere in Ethiopia, and they're all wearing matching t-shirts, and they're there with their selfie sticks taking a picture with all these starving people, and they're saying, hashtag, feed the hungry. Well, how does that make you feel? You know, is that an ostentatious motive? Or is that a candid implementation of righteous works that needs to be displayed, that's encouraging to us? I mean, I don't know, I'm asking you. No, and don't assume that I'm saying those things are bad. I'm just saying, how does that come across? Because these are daily contacts that we have. What I do know is that Jesus addressed this issue of motive in our Christian life in His Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. And if we look at Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, we'll read verses 1 through 4, and then we'll ellipticize down to verses 16 through 18. So in Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, the Bible says, "...take heed that you do not your alms before men, to be seen of them. Otherwise you have no reward from your Father which is in heaven. Therefore..." When thou dost thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou dost thine alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, 
that thine alms may be in secret, and that thy Father which seeth thee in secret himself shall reward thee openly. Moreover, when you fast, be not as the hypocrites of sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, and they appear unto men to fast. Verily, I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou fast, anoint thine head and wash thy face, that thou may appear unto men to fast, that thou appear not unto men to fast, but unto thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which is in secret shall reward thee openly. You know, here Christ is teaching us that when we perform our good works, when we go out and we do good deeds, we shouldn't be trying to create a situation in which we are trying to exploit our charitable actions before a group of people or before an audience. We shouldn't be going out trying to selfishly seek people to look at us and exploit our good works. But rather, we're commanded to do the opposite. We're commanded to serve people from a state of humility, shielded from the selfish pursuit of the public spotlight. That's what Jesus is saying right here. You know, when I read this, I was thinking, you know, this kind of contradicts what He said in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16, right? In Matthew chapter 5 verse 16, Jesus said, Let your light so shine before men that men see your good works and they glorify your Father which is in heaven. So here on this same sermon that He's given on the mount, Jesus tells us that we don't need to be uh, doing our good deeds uh, in a public manner. We need to be covert with our, 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 our good deeds. But then over here He's saying that we need to be performing good deeds so that people can see them and glorify God. That's contradictory, right? Well, the answer to that is no, it's not contradictory. When you look in Matthew chapter 6 in verses 1 through 4, Jesus is not forbidding all acts of public service or all acts done in the public arena. Rather, what He's saying is, is don't be performing these acts in a way in which you're trying to bring glory to yourself. And he goes on to emphasize what he's saying there when he follows that statement up with the Pharisees, they go out in the street and they blow their horns and they in the synagogues and they make this big to-do. So everyone can turn around and look at them and see how great they are and all the good things that they're doing. They're trying to obtain glory from men. But then notice in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16, when he says, let your light so shine before men, that means... See your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. The issue is not so much time, manner, and place restrictions. The issue is the motivation behind those works. And that's what he's teaching. He's not saying you can't go out in the public and do good things. He's saying what I'm concerned about is the reason why you're doing those things to begin with. It's not so much that you're doing them in the public. It's not so much the logistics of the work, but the reason that you're doing them in the first place. And that's what we're dealing here with this morning. The motivation to serve God. What is the motive to serve God? You know, in 1 Peter chapter 2... Beginning in verse 12, Peter says, "...having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, that, not, that may by your good works they shall behold and glorify God in the day of visitation." Excuse me one second, my mouth's getting dry. When you look at First Peter, First Peter is written to a group of Christians 
who are struggling with discrimination. They're being discriminated against among people in the public. They're facing accusations of civil disobedience. They're facing accusations of immoral behavior. They're facing government and societal oppression. And so when you look at 1 Peter, it's an encouragement to those people. They're saying, you know, Peter's writing to them saying, hey, keep on keeping on. Keep living blameless lives. Keep being the good examples that you're being. I know it's hard. I know you're in this situation that you're discriminated against. But hey, keep your head up and keep doing what you're doing. And notice what he says. That when you perform your good works, what? That they may glorify God in the day of visitation. He's reiterating what Christ was teaching on His Sermon on the Mount. That the purpose of doing the work is to glorify God and not yourself. That's the purpose the motivation behind doing good deeds. And so when we look at Matthew chapter 6, it's not just a simple instructional about good deeds and alms. It's a call to awareness for you and I to evaluate our entire motive of serving God to begin with. To evaluate our entire motive of serving God to begin with. Motivation is a catalyst. It's why we do what we do. It's the absence of apathy. And it absolutely matters to God what our motivation is in serving Him. Now let me give you an example. You know, say it's Valentine's Day and my wife's at work and all her, all her co-workers are getting flowers and candies and sentimental expressions of love from their spouses. And I realize that if I don't send something then you know, I'm probably going to hurt her feelings. And I'm going to look like the big goofball that everyone thinks I am at her work. So I best, I best get up my lazy self and go get her a card or something and send it to her at work so they can, she can be appeased and I won't have to worry about hurting her feelings. And you know, I have all that taken care of. So I get up and I do those things. Well, I did the good deed. I did the work. But how do you think my wife would feel if she understood the motive behind my offering to her with that. You think it would change the way she felt about it? I think so, absolutely. So how does God feel when our intent for serving Him is anything less than a pure intent? You know, sometimes we can do the right things, but we just do them for the wrong reasons. Right? We just illustrated that. I want us to look at a group of people who were doing the right things but they had the wrong motivation. In Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 28, it says, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and unto the flock which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers, that you feed the church of God, which He's purchased with His own blood. For I know this, that after my departure shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own self shall men arise, speaking perverse things. To, to draw away disciples after them. Here Paul is at this place called Miletus. And when he gets at Miletus, he summons the elders at the church at Ephesus to meet him there because he had a very important message for the elders there. And so the elders at Ephesus, they come to Miletus and they greet Paul. And Paul says, look, here's, here's the thing i got to tell you. I've got a message for you. This is probably going to be the last time you see me. 
Right? I think Paul realized that the walls were closing in on his life, that he didn't have much longer to live, that the government wasn't going to tolerate him much longer, and I think he kind of foreshadowed that his life was coming to an end. So he had a very important message for these elders. And they come and he tells them this, and it's a very sorrowful, sad time, but he said, look, I want you to watch out for the problems on the inside of the congregation, and I want you to watch out for the problems on the outside of the congregation. And... Farewell, my brethren. I love you. This will probably be the last time you see me. And it says it was a very sorrowful time. They, they, they cried and they were, they were sharing this time with Paul. And he left. So my question is, is, how did they do there at Ephesus? You know, when Paul left, he didn't just leave them hanging there. He actually left. If you look in 1 Timothy chapter 1, I think about verse 3, we see that Timothy actually stayed at Ephesus with them to encourage them, to help them keep and heed the warning that Paul gave them. So how did they do? Well, we find out how they did in the Revelation, in Revelation chapter 2. In Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 1 through 3, it says, Unto the angel of the church at Ephesus, these things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience, how thou cannot bear them which that are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. Wow. Good job, church at Ephesus. They did the right things. They were keeping the wolves out. They were watching out for the problems on the inside of the congregation. They were watching out for the problems on the outside of the congregation. They were keeping the proper conduct of orderly worship. They were doing the right things. Good job. They heeded to Paul's warning. They did exactly what he told them to do. But wait. Look at the verse that comes after that. Nevertheless, I somewhat have something against thee because thou left thy first love. They were doing the right things. They were were crossing their T's. They were dotting their I's. But they were doing it for the wrong reasons. The love that they had for Christ that was motivating them to do those things, they abandoned it. They weren't doing those things out of a motivation, out of a drive, out of a zeal for a love of God's Son. And He tells them, you better turn it around. You better fix it. They were doing the right things for the wrong reason. They were doing the right things for the wrong motivation. I want you to ask yourselves while you're here this morning, really and truly. Be honest with yourself. Why are, why are you really here this morning with God's people? Are you a generationalist? You're, you know, well, my dad went to the Church of Christ, then his dad went to the Church of Christ, and my great granddaddy, he went to the Church of Christ, and we're, you know, I'm a fourth generation, that's what we do on Sunday morning. We go to the Church of Christ. That's good. That's honorable. That's good to see that being passed down from generation to generation. That is a good thing. Maybe you're here this morning because I don't want to go to hell. So I better make sure that I'm in the pew every Sunday. You know, I can understand that. I can think that's, you know, a good motivation. You know, I always hear people say, you know, you know, talking about getting divorced. Well, we're just going to stay together because, uh, you know, just for the kids. 
That's a good reason to stay together for the kids. You know, it's a good reason we come. We have different reasons, different motives why we come here, right? Maybe you're a potlucker. Maybe you thought we were having potluck today, and you know, you're not going to miss a meal every time the church gets together and has free food, right? You know, you're a potlucker. Whatever it is, there's a reason, there's a motive that you chose to come here today. You know, I could try to stand up here today and give you some systematic framework, some systematic analysis, how we can walk through and see if we have the right motivation to serve God, have the proper step. You know, five bullet points on how we can have the right motivation to serve God. Three easy steps to get the motivation to serve God. But the reality, that's not reality, is it? That's not reality. I can't pull that from a, from a Church of Christ outline somewhere on the internet and have you tell you how to have the right motivation to serve God. Only that can come from the deepest chambers of your heart. I can't stand up here with a PowerPoint and draw arrows and animations to show you how to have a love for Christ. That's drawn with something on a personal level. With something of personal connection. So where does the motivation come from? The motivation comes from that. That's the motivation The reason that we should come to church. The reason that we should perform good acts and good deeds and service to others. The reason that we should do those things is because God's Son faced the greatest injustice that this world has ever seen. And He did it so that He could place you in a state before God, in a righteous state. That's the motivation. You know, the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 14, for the, for the love of Christ constraineth us. That word constraineth there means compels. It's the love of Christ that compels me to do the things that I do. That's the motivation. That's the zeal that Paul had. That was what motivated him, fueled him to go out and to serve. You know, when I go out and I serve my brother in whatever acts of service that I perform, I shouldn't be performing them so I can say, hey, hey, look at me for other people. The reason I go out and perform those acts is because hours before my Savior was murdered, He went and washed the feet of His own friends, His own disciples. That's the reason I perform the good deed. is because it was a characteristic, it was a trait of our Savior. <coughs> Excuse me, my mouth keeps getting really dry up here this morning. You know, in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 22, the Bible says that there will be many before Christ in the day of judgment that stand before Him and say, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in Thy name? Have we not cast out devils and done many wondrous works? Or Lord, we did so many good things. We did so many acts of service. Our alms were great. We did all these good things. But it says that Christ is going to look at them and say, Who are you? There was no relationship between you and I. Those things that you did, they weren't for me. They weren't out of a motivation for me because I don't know who you are. The motivation, the intent of our heart absolutely matters to God. And so, you know, I just stood up here and I told you, I can't draw some framework for how to give you the motivation to serve God. But I can explain to you how to revive that motivation if you've had it but you just lost it. You know, Ephesus was not the only congregation 
that suffered a lack of motivation. They, they weren't. If you look in Revelation chapter 3, you'll see that there was another congregation named Sardis who had some motivational issues as well. If you look in Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, it says, "...unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These sayings saith he that hath the seven spirits of God, and the seven stars. I know thy works, and thou hast a name that livest, and art dead." Meaning they had no motivation. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. And so he's telling this congregation, hey, look, people see y'all over there and they think you're really good and you know, you have this, you know, this, this veneer of people about you. But on the inside, there's no motivation. You're just dead. You're just, there's just lifeless latency with you people. The great physician came along and took their pulse and found an impending death at this congregation. They were spiritually complacent. They were spiritually apathetic. They were spiritually numb. On the outside, they had a veneer of spirituality. And on the inside, they were nothing more than a corpse. No motivation. They had fallen to a state of inactivity. No service out of devotion for God's Son. Just lifeless latency. So how does He tell them to fix it? Because He tells them how to fix it. Ready? This is going to be really complex. It's going to be kind of hard for us to wrap our minds around this. You ready? Look in verse 3. Remember. Remember when you first received Christ. Remember the happiness, the security, the heart-piercing feeling you had when you realized that it wasn't the nails that held Jesus to the cross. It was your sins. You know, in Acts chapter 2 and verse 37, we read on the day of Pentecost that Peter was preaching to those people there and he told them, you killed Jesus. All of you killed Him. You may not have been the Roman soldier that bound His hand, but you're the reason that He died. And it says that they were all pierced in their hearts and, and they, they asked, men and brethren, what shall we do? They were overtaken, overcome with remorse and, and just that, that feeling. He's saying you need to go back, church of Sardis. You need to have that Acts 2.37 moment. You need to remember that. Lest I forget thy thorn-crowned brow, lead me to Calvary. Motivation matters to God. The intent of our heart matters to God. Everything that Jesus dealt with, when He dealt with an issue, no matter what it was, He always went to the heart of the issue, the motive of the issue. Not just the external act. I appreciate you allowing me to come and speak with you this morning. i got one more sermon to go this afternoon. And, uh, you know, coming in here today, um, I saw a congregation that is very warm and very welcoming, very hospitable, very kind people. And that's encouraging for me to see. And, and, and I commend you for that. And I thank the leadership for allowing me to come and to speak with you.